Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Norcross, along with Luke Doris. This is podcast number six of Hurricane Season 2021 and podcast number 62 in our series. Today, we're going to talk to Dr. Carrie Emanuel, the distinguished meteorology professor at MIT in Boston, climate scientist, author, and outstanding explainer of uh, science issues. Uh, Luke, he's uh, an amazing guy, really is. He's fascinating. Yes, he really is. You're, you're gonna, Wonderful you're really going to enjoy this uh, conversation. So, Kerry developed some of the most fundamental theories on how hurricanes work that inform so much of uh, how we understand the potential strength of storms today. He wrote a fantastic book in 2005 called "Divine Wind: The History and Science of Hurricanes." Most of it holds up even today, and we'll talk about how science has evolved since he wrote the book. These days, Kerry is very involved in climate research, trying to understand how things will change in a warmer world, and how to communicate the certainties and the uncertainties of what we know about the climate uh, of the future and the climate of today. How can we even guess how, in a warmer world, uh, hurricanes will be affected? for example. You'll understand a lot more after we talk to Kerry. We'll have that conversation with Dr. Kerry Emanuel in just a few minutes. We're recording this podcast on Wednesday, July 21st, 2021. If you're listening at some point in the future for the latest weather, of course, tune into Channel 10 in South Florida or Local10.com, where we stream all of the Local 10 newscasts all day long and the Max Tracker Hurricane app for the latest on the tropics and of course the local 10 weather authority app for current information and if you go to local10.com hurricane you can sign up for the newsletter that i write uh, whenever there's anything threatening out there you'll see in the middle of the page a box you put in your email address and it'll get emailed to you uh, every day whenever uh, we publish something because there is some kind of something going on of interest and luke uh, out there right now there's not much going on of interest. The National Hurricane Center has a little area off North Florida and the southeast coast related to a front, I guess, that's going to kind of die out there, right? Yeah, it sort dies of. and it kind of festers and mm -hmm. there's it's tied loosely to the reason why we're going to be getting so much rain, it looks like, as we head into the weekend. There's just this river of moisture that moves across that front and also comes to South Florida. So it festers and there's a chance it could take on some tropical characteristics. They give it a low 20 percent chance now. So uh, aside from that, it's all about the dust. Lots of dust has been yeah. much of the story so far this July. Lots of dust and a lot of descending air. And the dust is um, unusually far south. I mean, it really covers the, the entire tropics. Last year, if you recall, we had a lot of dust, but a couple storms snuck underneath of it because the dust was far enough north this year. Uh, so far, at least it's uh, farther south. So anyway, tropics are quiet for now, even if that thing were to develop into something off the southeast coast, looks like it would go on out to sea. Uh, we set So we set a record with Elsa. Right, the earliest fifth storm on record, exceeding last year, uh, but now we're falling behind, which is <laughs> which is a good thing actually. But anyway, that's the fact. You bet, hitting the brakes because by uh, last year we had Faye, July 9th, we had Gonzalo, the 22nd, then Hannah a couple days later, then by the end of the month we had Isaias on on like the 30th. So we're we're falling behind quickly right. from last year. And, and, and we had to say, well, we can't totally rule out this thing off the southeast coast. It's probably not going to develop in anything. But anyway, the rest of July probably is not going to generate anything significant. At least that's 
what we're thinking now, but we never forecast more than about five days in advance. So, you bet. Uh, so anyway, that's where we are. All right, let's bring in one of the best communicators I know in the field of hurricane and climate science, who's, uh, who knows more about hurricanes than pretty much anybody I know, and that's Dr. Carrie Emanuel from MIT. Hi, Carrie. Welcome to our podcast. It's nice to be with you, Brian. I'm always curious about how successful people get interested in where they end up. So uh, let's start at the beginning. Did you first get interested in weather or in science? Well, I first got interested in weather and later got interested in some other aspects of science. But uh, according to my older brother, uh, I was already interested in weather as, an, as a toddler. I used to crawl over to the nearest window whenever there was a thunderstorm. Did you, did you come from a sciencey family? Was your father or your mother a scientist or involved in some aspect of physics or weather or science? No. Um, the closest I could say is that my mother, uh, way back in um, World War II, was a flight instructor. And because she was a pilot, she had to be interested in weather. So she was kind of interested in it. But I don't have any uh, professional scientists in my uh, family, as far as I know. When you first were interested in weather, you know, looking out the window and whatnot, what kind of weather was that? Where where were you, and and you know, where were you growing up that that uh, fascinated you? Well, we moved around. So the first ten years was outside Philadelphia, and I got very interested in thunderstorms in the summer, mm -hmm. and in uh, snowstorms, of course, in the winter time. And uh, later, we moved for a little while to Florida. Uh, the east coast of Florida, and I got fascinated with hurricanes and, of course, uh, thunderstorms and other phenomena they have down there. And uh, so, so it goes. Yeah, I got interested in the whole, the whole uh, range of weather phenomena. That's sort of my story too. I was early in my life outside of Philadelphia in in South Jersey. Actually, my father mm -hmm. worked for a company called Philco in in uh, outside of Philadelphia, and then and then we we moved with the Apollo program. That's very, very interesting because my father also worked for Philco. That's why we were <laughs> really maybe they knew each other. Maybe, maybe <laughs> that's that's uh, that's crazy. Out in yeah. Bluebell, Pennsylvania, as a matter of fact, is where he he worked at, at the, the Philco plant. Anyway, um, getting back to the weather business, in your book that you wrote in two thousand five, I guess, Divine Wind, you finished up the the book chapter 32 the last one is about climate and hurricanes if you were doing a, a new version of that would climate come up sooner and and is that about the time that global warming started to gain traction in your thinking about the atmosphere and the ocean and hurricanes oh yes brian it would be a different chapter uh, <laughs> now because so much has been done not just by me but by many others um 2005 was really kind of a catalyst because Hurricane Katrina. And suddenly a lot of scientists became interested in whether uh, hurricanes would be affected by climate change. And I had written a paper way back in 1987 suggesting that the speed limit on hurricanes would go up. And um, that doesn't necessarily mean that you would have more storms, but that at least in principle, they could become more powerful. So, mm -hmm. yes, I think I would put more weight on that chapter if I were to write that book today. Well, I'm sure we'll talk a lot about that today. And I just read your book. In fact, I'm on it for the second time. I love it. And <laughs> for a couple of reasons. One is it, 
I walk away with a deeper understanding of these really complex concepts that I, if I've been introduced to them before in meteorology school, but you are so good at making these abstract ideas really crystal clear. And now I can visualize it better. And then the other part of it is you, you take a chapter where you're teaching about the processes of meteorology, and then the next one will be about a hurricane from history. And there are these big events, and you start all the way back in ancient history and love the stuff about like Kublai Khan's failed invasion of Japan where uh, his armada was struck down twice by two different typhoons. It's fascinating stuff. So just a, a great book. I can't recommend it enough to anybody that has interest, in, and it's enjoyable for anybody. You don't have to be a meteorologist to understand it. It's very clear. But I wondered, there are so many storms throughout history that are fascinating and you've got to write a book so you have to condense were there any storms that you wanted to put in that landed on the cutting room floor well the um the obvious one which wasn't really my fault was katrina mm -hmm. because um i put that book to bed in 2004 and it was issued the first copy of it was issued a few weeks after katrina and of course, Katrina was a major event in U.S. history. So I would have would have liked to have held off another year and included that. But there, to answer your question more directly, sure, there, there, there are so many fascinating storms in uh, U.S. history. I might have written about Hurricane Hazel, for example. I think it was 1954. Uh, it's uh, it's impossible to uh, it's impossible to stop. Uh, it's really hard to say. Okay, I gotta I gotta cut it off here. I would imagine. Um, so we'll get back to talking about the climate here in just a second, but tell us more about writing the book. What was uh, the inspiration and what was the process? Uh, there are so many deeply researched and, and interesting stories in it. Well, I thought the interesting um, idea, what I really wanted to accomplish was to look at the phenomenon in a sort of a very holistic way. That is not just the science, although importantly, the science of hurricanes, but also how, how they have um, played a role in history. You mentioned Kublai Khan's failed invasions of Japan, two failed invasions. There, there are others, of course. And also the um, effect they had on poets, uh, artists, and so forth. I just wanted to see if you could kind of put it all together into, well, here's a phenomenon. Here's how we look at it as scientists. Here's how it affects people through history and through creative art. Absolutely. So, yeah, I love yeah, go ahead, the, the battle. The battle of the Calliope is one of my favorites from the book where, you know, the art side of it comes through. And I can imagine, you know, in pop culture at the time, that was a that was a big thing. It's just a beautiful uh, story of, uh, of coming together after the hurricane. The battle of the Calliope. Check it out. So sorry, Brian. Yeah, that's, yeah there's there are a number of examples. So we started uh, talking about climate. Let's let's uh, continue about that. Then we'll get back to hurricanes. So for a long time, you've been talking about using climate models to simulate hurricanes in a warmer world. That started back when the climate models were super uh, low resolution, and now, of course, they they are a higher resolution. But how does that work? How do you draw a conclusion about how hurricanes will behave as the atmosphere warms and the, the earth and ocean system uh, warms using a fairly low resolution model, especially compared to the weather models that we use to forecast on a day-to-day -day basis. I think it's a big problem. And Brian, I'm really not a big fan of using climate models directly 
to uh, understand how hurricanes will evolve. I, you know, the, even today's global climate models of the kind you would run not just for a few days or a few months or maybe a year or two, but the kind you'd run out 100 years, they're still too coarse to come close to resolving the core of a hurricane. And we know from using very specialized local models of hurricanes where we can afford very good resolution, kinds that are used in weather forecasts, that you have very stiff resolution requirements for hurricanes. So um, my approach has been to do something called downscaling, where you start with the climate model and you take its large scale variables, which you could hope are being simulated correctly, and use those to drive a much finer scale model that uh, has proven its worth in other contexts and try to do it that way. And so I've spent a lot of time on that. So you're talking about uh, using the climate model to simulate the amount of moisture in the atmosphere or some other large-scale uh, aspect of how the um, atmospheric and oceanographic system would evolve. Exactly. So the, the really uh, important variables for hurricanes are the temperature and moisture content of the atmosphere, the, the temperature of the ocean, uh, the humidity of the atmosphere all the way up to a few miles above the surface, and the surrounding large-scale winds. It's well known, for example, that the shear of the winds uh, can rip storms apart or prevent them from forming. So we have to take into account all of those. And it's done not hocus-pocus, but by embedding in this large-scale system a, a very uh, finely resolved model that knows about all the variables uh, whether you thought of them as being important or not, actually, uh, and uh, takes that into account. And uh, we're kind of happy with this in a way because we can reproduce the climatology of hurricanes in the current climate very well with this technique, which the climate models directly have a really hard time doing, actually. So uh, that's been our approach at any rate. In other words, if I just tell me if I understand this right, because I think it is so fascinating and so important really to, to get past this idea of of understanding hurricanes how often they're they're going to happen just based on the historical record which is so frighteningly short any kind of accurate record so what you do is is you have this uh, you have confidence that the structure of the future atmosphere is is established properly in the model and then you insert kind of inserted a, a storm in it, right? Or insert a seed in it and then see how many of them grow uh, and and see how that's different. Uh, first of all, you look to see if it simulates the modern situation and then you change it, change the overall structure of the atmosphere and see how that changes the, the future. Is that is that uh, the way it works? Yeah. Yeah, we call it uh, random seeding and natural selection. We mm -hmm. take this large scale state uh, that's represented by climate models and seed it literally with mm -hmm. sort of proto-hurricane vortices, uh, little seeds, randomly in space and time, we throw down hundreds of thousands of seeds. And only the ones, a very small fraction, by the way, of seeds you put down uh, grow because they're in a favorable environment. And that is what we say constitutes the climatology. And the only reason we have confidence in it is that it works for the present climate. Yeah, and, and that's, that's why we don't have a lot of storms uh, every year, right? Because it, because the conditions don't come together that often to uh, allow a, a well-developed tropical system to develop. 
Yes, yeah, so, and let me say that it's, and you made a point in your earlier question that I think is terribly important, that is that, you know, we think still of climate change as being a problem about the future, and to some extent, of course, it is. But here's the thing, there's already been a lot of climate change, uh, quite a bit. And um, when we look at really extreme events like Hurricane Harvey, at least in terms of the rain it produced, what we see is that climate change, you know, has already affected the probability of rain like that, say in Texas, a lot. Um, we think three different groups of scientists, I was one of them, came quite independently to the conclusion that Harvey's rain was three times more likely, that amount of rain was three times more likely in 2017 than it had been only 30 years earlier because of climate change. Now, the problem is that a lot of things like building codes, insurance policies are based strictly on historical records that go back 50 or 100 years. And so they represent a climate that has ceased to exist. And so a lot of what we're doing is trying to understand what the risk is right now, right? Um, mm -hmm. Let alone the future. And to do that, uh, you know, we have to reckon with the fact that climate models are uncertain. So we apply this downscaling technique to as many climate models as we can get the requisite data from. In divine wind, you talk about the field of paleo tempestology. I think that that's a coin, a, a term that you coined, actually, uh, <laughs> yeah. which is the science uh, for uh, of looking for evidence of past storms through examining where and when beach sand was washed inland, for example, uh, by looking at layers of dirt that uh, accumulated over the millennia near the coastline, if I understand it. So, how do modern climate mo models jibe? with what can be learned by doing that and by looking for evidence of storms that happened back when the earth was much warmer, presumably? Well, it's a very interesting question you ask. And of course, uh, it's something we would dearly like to know the answer to. So we have tried to do comparisons. I'll tell you what makes it tough is that each of those sites where we take cores from near shore lakes or marshes, um, and examine them for evidence of storms are recording storms that pass very close by and or were very strong. They don't really see the weak storms or the storms that are further away. And there aren't very many of them. So one site, it turns out by the time you really get to the data, it's, it's not telling you very much about the hurricane climatology. What you really would like to do is have data from a lot of different sites that are reasonably nearby but far enough apart that they're sampling different storms. And we're not quite there yet. And um, I was part of a paper uh, that was written by a, a student um, who was also a student at the Woods Hole Joint Program who did all of the geological aspects. And she and I came to the conclusion that, um, you know, trying to look at centennial variability in a one particular core is going to give you signals that aren't actually climate signals but represent just the randomness of storms so we're trying to go back and and consolidate records from an area but it's a very very promising approach to understanding how uh, past climate change has affected hurricanes and that use that to test all of the models we've been talking about yeah i watched a uh, there's a presentation that you gave in the florida panhandle i think it's from 2005 uh, and talking about the probability of a Category 5 hurricane within 150 miles of wherever you were giving this presentation. I think it was Pensacola. And it was something like yeah. one in a thousand 
uh, year event. And then you extrapolated that out and, and to a warmer world and said maybe it drops down to a 1 in 300 or 1 in 100 year event. It's been a while since I watched the presentation, uh, but they didn't have to wait long for Michael. So it, it was just an interesting uh, presentation that you had given on that general area and in a warmer climate how it would be more likely uh, in that region. And indeed, it wasn't all that long that it happened. But a very obvious and dramatic change in the Earth climate is the off-the-charts warming in the Arctic. We've seen unheard of temperatures very far north this summer. I think it hit 121 in British Columbia. So I assume the climate models predict that. What's going on there? What's the mechanism that warms the Arctic so much more than the tropics? Do we know? Yeah, we know that pretty well. And to give the climate model some credit, they predicted that all along that there would be Arctic amplification. Um, there are several different mechanisms that cause the Arctic to warm up a lot faster than uh, other areas. One is that you're starting from a colder place. And uh, the amount of water vapor in the air is relatively small when it's cold. But changes in the water vapor that are brought about by warming produce a much larger green change in the greenhouse effect of water vapor. Uh, so when it gets warmer because of carbon dioxide and other long-lived greenhouse gases, that's a positive feedback. It also gets wetter but water vapor is a, uh, a uh, greenhouse gas, so that gives you a positive feedback. And that positive feedback is, is stronger when you're starting from lower temperatures. The other thing that happens is Arctic sea ice melts. And in fact, sea ice has been retreating much faster than any of the models predicted, which is a little alarming. And when you melt sea ice, you replace nice white ice that reflects sunlight with dark water that absorbs it. And that's another positive feedback mechanism that's operating in high latitudes. So there are others as well, uh, by the way, but that all they all combine to give you much faster warming there than, say, closer to the equator. So one of the ways, of course, that, that heat moves from the equator north or from the tropics north is with the Gulf Stream in the Atlantic, at least. And and that's part of the thermohaline circulation, this overturning circulation that goes all around the, the earth. The conveyor belt goes with the warm water on the surface of the north, then it goes uh, deep and, and continues all around the earth. Well, about 30 years ago, I think, the famous and amazing Dr. Bill Gray talked about changes in that circulation that, that he was able to measure over periods of 25 to 40 years. And somehow that was responsible. Well, not somehow. He, he Due to salinity changes in the ocean and, and whatnot, that that was the driving force of what looked like cycles in, in hurricane uh, activity. I remember you know, these talks very clearly, just like they were yesterday. I mean, Bill was such a, a dynamic character, as uh, I know you know. Uh, but now, uh, I guess we, we know that that's really not the primary uh, factor. That And uh, so I leave it to you to talk about the pollution issue and the volcanic issue that, that now we think it is, because I know that, that uh, you were part, or you have done that research as well. But how do these things fit together the the because i'm sure that what bill was talking about you know he was measuring things that that were indeed real about the of uh, this oscillation of some sort in the flow of the gulf stream uh, north and the overturning circulation uh although now you know through other kinds of analysis we 
of the European pollution, I guess, was the main factor, as I understand it, that affected hurricanes. But the, you know, the cycle of things in the world was affected by other factors more dominantly or conjointly, or how do these, these two things go together? Well, it's, it's a very, very interesting problem. Let me begin by saying that most of the work on this problem has been done for the Atlantic and the mm -hmm. Atlantic hurricanes. And only about 11% of all the hurricanes on our planet occur in the Atlantic. But the Atlantic is by far the best measured place, both in terms of hurricane climatology and other things. So getting back to your point about uh, oscillations versus pollution and so forth, it's definitely not an either or problem. There's a lot of different things that influence the climate of the Atlantic and the hurricanes of the Atlantic. A very well-known one, and there's not much dispute about this, is El Nino, mm. uh, which is not exactly cyclic, but it's every two to four years there's an El Nino, and when we have an event like that, it tends to suppress Atlantic hurricanes. Um, a very obvious one is the annual cycle. <laughs> hurricanes mm -hmm. in the summer and not in the winter. But beyond that, there there are other influences, and the one that Bill Gray talked about, this Atlantic multi-decadal oscillation, we do see evidence for that. It's just that it seems to be a bit faster than he. the evidence when he was looking at it suggested. It, it's more like a 10-year 10, 10 time scale oscillation. That there is, on top of that, a spectacular hurricane drought that occurred in the Atlantic, in the, principally in the 1970s and 80s. And again, there's not much doubt about that if you look mm -hmm. at the records. The tropical Atlantic summertime temperature sea surface temperatures were lower than usual during that period and there were fewer hurricanes. And very recently, and you alluded to this, we've been able to sort of pick out what happened. And this is a work that a PhD student of mine did and just published as his thesis a few months ago, actually. And it's a little bit complicated, but you're, you put your finger on it. It actually has to do with the fact that while we were ramping up combustion of fossil fuels, one of the byproducts aside from greenhouse gases, is um, chemicals, uh, some of which are turned into aerosols or directly aerosol emissions. One of those is sulfur, and sulfur undergoes a reaction in the atmosphere, becomes a sulfate particle, which you see as kind of a thick haze, if you happen to be in a place where there are a lot of them. And that haze reflects sunlight. And what we, what we were able to show pretty uh, persuasively is that uh, um, um, I should add that they, those ramped up, but then beginning in the 80s, these Clean Air Acts, thank God, kicked in and reduced them right back down to relatively low levels, at least in the West. And the sulfates that came from Northern Europe uh, were swept down in the summertime circulation around the Azores High over the Sahara, where they reduced sunlight coming in there, which, uh, which caused a weakening of the African monsoon, which normally produces a lot of rain in Africa. So this gets to be a complicated problem, but because of it dried out and it demonstrably got a lot drier in Africa, a spectacular drought during that same time, the 70s and 80s, a lot more dust was picked up by winds over the Sahara, sub-Saharan part of Africa and swept out over the Atlantic. And that reflected a lot of sunlight and, and helped to cool the Atlantic down. So it's it's a it's a almost a domino. It's a complicated story, but the net effect was a big spectacular reduction in Atlantic hurricane activity, both numbers and strength of storm, 
And we did that. I'm pretty convinced now we did that as an accidental byproduct of burning fossil fuels. And when we got rid of the sulfur, they came roaring back. So a lot of the big uptick we've seen in the Atlantic since the 80s is because we've cleaned up the atmosphere. And I remember Bill Gray talking about the amount of rainfall in in uh, the Sahel part of Africa, which is the where the the systems develop that move out over the Atlantic that become the seeds uh, for hurricanes. I, you know, I remember him talking about that and trying to forecast that uh, back then, and, and and the idea that that was in some kind of a drought but of unknown origins at that time. The, I think the thought was that that was just a cyclic uh, occurrence, right, that made that be be something of a drought. I mean, so he had the elements of that correct, maybe not the driving factors for uh, behind it, sounds like to me. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I think it's also true that we've learned since that time that you need a few years of drought to really affect the Atlantic hurricanes. One be- one year isn't necessarily, one dry year isn't necessarily gonna produce a hurricane season that's, that's low, but a series of years, yeah, he was right about that. Mm-hmm. So how much can we say about a particular hurricane? So we'll t- we talked about Harvey earlier with the incredible rainfall that it brought to Houston, locally five feet. And then we had Florence with its very slow movement or the troubling trend that we've had. You know, this was a big deal last year um, and we've seen a lot of it uh, over the past several, but storms intensifying near the coast recently. How much of this is random first related to a warmer atmosphere? Well, it's very uh, hard to say anything about a particular storm. Um, People try to do that, but the way I like to phrase it, and a lot of my colleagues do, is, okay, take a Harvey or a Florence or a Katrina or whatever you like and say, well, how probable was an event like that where it happened today versus 30 years ago? And how probable will that event like that be 30 or 40 years from now? That's about all we can say. I think it's a meaningful statement, um, but detecting climate change, whether it's natural or man-made climate change, detecting its effect on hurricanes is really hard because after all, hurricanes are rare. They don't happen very often. And so you're dealing with trying to make something of the statistics of relatively small numbers. It's, it's tough. We keep trying to do it. But meanwhile, the theory and the models um, are advanced enough to tell us unequivocally that we are increasing risk how much we're increasing it. Um, that's that's a debatable question, but I've been a very strong advocate of framing the hurricane and climate problem because hurricanes affect us. It's not just some random signal we might be curious about, like uh, the existence of gravitational radiation, that we look at this not as a problem primarily of signal detection, although we should do that and we keep trying, but primarily as a problem of risk. And I would go so far as to say as if for some tragic reason we only had 10 years of records of hurricanes and not 100 or 50, uh, there's still enough evidence from basic theory and models that we are incurring risk. And again, the level of that can be debated, but uh, it's, it, it's too, there's too much evidence now to just turn your back and say, well, this might not happen. We just have to treat it as a, we would any other kind of serious risk. 
Absolutely. It, it, I'll take a bit of a detour here, but in reading some of your work, and I, I think it's in your book, I'm pretty sure, uh, you have touched on something called the hypercane. So would you indulge my inner sci-fi movie fan and tell me about your research on these? What are these? Are they just uh, products of monkeying around with the models and the model puts out these? Or could they have existed in the past or could they exist in the future under the right conditions? And what would their impacts be? Well, it's a, it's a fascinating sci-fi question. And it all started, you know, back in the 80s when I was working on the sort of theory of the upward bound on hurricane intensity. And when you develop that theory, there's an interesting feedback that happens when hurricanes intensify. As most people will know, the hurricane has low pressure at its center. And ordinarily, as air moves to lower pressure, which, for example, does when it moves upward in the atmosphere, it expands. And uh, the first law of thermodynamics tells you it gets colder. Uh, but air moving from horizontally from high to low pressure as it moves into a hurricane is observed not to suffer much cooling because even though the air is expanding and that's because heat is being added by the ocean. And that's a component, uh, not the most important one, but a component of the total amount of heat coming from the ocean that drives the hurricane. But it's a kind of an interesting positive feedback because the stronger the storm, the lower the pressure, the lower the pressure, the more of this kind of heating happens. And the more heating, the stronger the storm gets. Now, under the present climate, there are enough negative feedbacks to keep that in check. But the equations uh, suggested that if you made it really warm, like 50 degrees centigrade ocean temperature, way beyond anything we expect to happen, by the way, that that particular feedback runs away. And we were able to simulate in a computer what would happen. And you get a very spectacular storm that looks different. It's like a giant tornado in a way, like a mile wide or so, a few miles wide, not 30 or 40 miles wide. And it goes all the way up in the stratosphere. So we've had a lot of fun with that. But we don't think there's any danger of us having anything like that kind of storm. The We wrote a paper in the early 90s that it's still kind of a fantasy paper, although I still think it's plausible. That is, you know, there were uh, various times in the ge in geological past collisions between asteroids or big meteorites in the Earth, some of which coincide with large uh, mass extinctions of species in the record. And, you know, a big rock hits the Earth, you expect a lot of things to go wrong. Uh, but it is not entirely easy to figure out why life halfway around the world would have necessarily perished. Uh, and so one of the ideas we had was, well, if you had one of these impacts in the ocean, particularly in shallow water, it could have heated up the ocean locally hot enough to get one of these storms. And one of the byproducts is you pump a lot of water into a place which is very, very dry today, and that's the stratosphere. And if you do that, you could destroy the ozone layer. And one of my co-authors is Mario Molina, who got the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for his work on ozone, uh, and that indeed would happen. But it's a, it's a, you know, it's a lot of ifs in that string. So it remains science fiction. Let's put it that way. Yeah. What about an underground or an underwater volcano? Could that do it? Yeah, we thought about that too. Um, and yeah, if you had 
one of these, not just a, a, a single volcano probably, Brian, but if you had one of these flood basalt episodes, which we don't have a modern example of, but there's plenty of evidence in the geological past where you just have, for a long period of time, you just have an outpouring of, slow outpouring of lava on the ocean floor or even on land, um, that that you that could be massive enough to, to, again, locally heat the water to the point where you might have one of these events. So, you know, it's meteorology's black hole in a way. And yeah. uh, I don't think it's ever going to be observed on Earth because we're just not near the kind of conditions you would need. But it may have happened from volcanism or asteroid impacts in the past. So talking about the speed limit on hurricanes, sort of the natural speed limit, uh, when I studied tropical meteorology with Noel Lassure back at, at FSU in 1979, 80, or 1980, I don't remember the importance of the heat and moisture transfer from the ocean and the development of hurricanes being a part or a big part of the discussion. I mean, we obviously talked about the heat flux to some degree, but uh, not to the degree that I think we understand the importance of that now. But that was before you introduced the idea of a maximum potential intensity, right? And, and where, where did it, what led you to that? As I remember that time, and now we're talking about a long time ago, right? We're talking about 40 years ago, more than 40 years ago when I was in school. Uh, so not that I remember every detail of what we were thinking about then, but it feels to me like you know, that started with you, so that it had to start from somewhere in your mind. Uh, how did you uh, end up with the idea of maximum potential intensity? Well, that was a very interesting journey, Brian. And like you, I learned about hurricanes as principally being driven by condensation of water mm -hmm. in the atmosphere. And I, uh, it was only when I had to teach hurricanes in a course that I was starting to teach at MIT uh, it's funny what you discover about your ignorance when you're forced to teach something, <laughs> really plumb the depths of it. And I said, you know, I can't understand this. And then I realized that way back in the early 1950s that uh, principally two German scientists, Ernst Kleinschmidt and Herb Reel, uh, later came to the U.S. That's right, right Chicago. And then in, uh, Bill Gray, Vincent he brought Bill Gray in somehow. Yeah, it, it's he in did. Bill's story, yes. right? He, yes. Yeah. He started the tropical meteorology program at Colorado State University. And mm -hmm. so he was he was an interesting character too. His life, fascinating life. He was a Hollywood script writer before mm -hmm. he ever did any of that. Anyway, um, uh, those guys really were onto it and understood that hurricanes are, are not powered by condensation of water vapor. They're powered from the flux of heat from the ocean to the atmosphere when water evaporates or even just because the ocean is a bit hotter than the atmosphere. And this is why they die when they go on land. It's not because there isn't plenty of moisture around, it's because there's no flux of, of heat from the ocean. We've been able to simulate in computers completely dry hurricanes uh, where you start with a deep atmosphere that gets colder very quickly as you go up. We would call that a dry adiabatic lapse rate and a hot surface like ocean in the sense that it's kept hot, doesn't doesn't cool immediately in response to any wind blowing over it, but no water and it develops nice hurricanes. Uh, so um, then it, at that point, I understood that, okay, we've got a kind of a heat engine. And if you know the rate at which fuel is going into that engine from the ocean, um, which is controlled by the ocean temperature and the atmospheric temperature principally, you can figure out 
uh, upper limit on how fast that engine can run if all its parts are working perfectly, which of course doesn't often happen, but sometimes it gets very close to perfection. So that's how the theory of the so-called potential intensity arose. So the bottom line is that in order to, uh, that this is why not every hurricane uh, becomes a super hurricane, becomes a huge hurricane, right? Because the, even though it's over warm water, it takes all of the factors, atmospheric factors and oceanographic factors uh, to, uh, you know, fuel the engine perfectly, kind of like having an engine that doesn't have great gasoline in it. Uh, right, or like too low yeah. in octane gasoline, or something, something that 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 does not allow an engine to operate at at full capacity. Is that fair? That's fair. That's right. I mean, it's. Uh, I think the potential intensity can be thought of as what the hurricane would do if nothing really interferes with it, uh, nothing molests it as it's trying to grow up, and mm. that. The usual factors are that, first of all, the ocean temperature doesn't usually remain constant because hurricanes churn up cold water from deeper in the ocean. That, so they sort of limit themselves that way. Mm-hmm. And the other is, is wind shear, which we talked about a little bit earlier, in which the, the environmental winds change with height. When that happens, it provides a route for dry air, which is like water uh, to quench a fire. Mm-hmm. When, it, it, it allows that dry air to get into the core of the storm and kind of uh, tamp it down. So uh, usually some combination of those factors is present in some degree. It's only when everything is perfect that the storm, if given enough time, will get to this speed limit. Now, you've written that climate change might make it more difficult to forecast hurricanes near the coast. Do I have that right? What's going on there? Yeah, uh, forecasts um, their intensity. I don't think it necessarily will make it more difficult to forecast their tracks. Um, but the one of the real forecaster nightmares, and I'm sure you guys know all about this, is you know there's a tropical storm in the Gulf of Mexico when you go to bed at night and you wake up in the morning and it's a Cat Four, and you didn't see it coming. Now there's not enough time to evacuate people and so forth. That's happened in our past. We've had some explosively intensifying storms that, uh, that made landfall right after this rapid intensification. And it's a real nightmare for forecasters. And the, the theory of potential intensity can be extended to cover an upper bound, if you will, on how fast the storm can intensify. And that turns out to be even more sensitive to climate than this cap on intensity we've just been talking about. In fact, it, it, uh, this potential intensity, the, the rate at which the storm intensifies, goes up very fast with that, goes up as the square of the potential intensity. And so we're worried, and we were able to simulate with tens, to, tens of thousands to 100,000 of these storms uh, that we simulate in future climates, um, that the incidence of rapid intensification just before landfall will probably go up a lot. And that has me concerned because we're not terribly good collectively at forecasting rapid intensification. It's still a puzzle. Maybe we'll get better at it. But until we do, we're more likely to be surprised. Let's put it that way. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, uh, I lived Hurricane Andrew. And and uh, ever since then, I've been talking about, you know, as even as technology has gotten better, forecasts have gotten better. The fact is, that it did not even have a closed circulation four days before landfall as a Category 5, 
and was a tropical storm three days before and only became a Category 1 hurricane 48 hours before. So if that were to happen again, that would still be a nightmare. <laughs> That's, you know, that... Uh, you know that sequence yeah. is is still not going to work well with modern you know modern forecasting ability as a matter of fact hurricane forecasts are never going to be perfect of, of course yeah. uh, for practical yeah. and chaos theory uh, reasons i guess but to what degree have we reached a point where the science of forecasting is much much better than the tools that we have to convey to the public so that they can take uh, appropriate action and, and and maybe this is a a rhetorical question, but and maybe it applies to to hurricanes and climate, both. Uh, do we know enough scientifically here, where really the bottom line is that we need to figure out how to uh, solve the social side of the problem? You know, I mean, I'm talking to a scientist, a premier scientist here, and asking whether we really need more science. I guess, but feels like to me that that in my time, you know, the balance in terms of what we know scientifically has gone up just so dramatically and our ability to convey these ideas i don't mean just deliver forecasts i mean actually convey the ideas so that people believe and understand and trust uh, and when i say people i mean people in the public and policymakers and and you know non-scientists feels like the the weight of the problem is on that side of the equation well what do you think well i absolutely agree with you on, on the two fundamental points you made. I mean, we have made a lot of progress, but we have a long way to go. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that our ability to communicate what we know has caught up with what we know. And it's especially true in communicating uncertainty. And uncertainty is awfully hard to communicate to people. Um, it's we know, as, I, as I'm sure you know, we, we have a much better idea of the uncertainty of any particular forecast, which varies right. a lot right. from one forecast to the next, than we're able to convey uh, with the communication tools we had. Uh, one of the things I've been strongly advocating is that, that in forecasting, we try to get away from a storm-centered, a storm-focused narrative mm -hmm to a people-focused narrative. And here's what I mean by that. We like to talk, and it's because we're meteorologists, uh, we like to talk about there's a storm, there's where it's located, there's where it's headed, this is how strong or big it is, and this is what we expect it to do. That's the classical framework for, for narrating or telling a story about the storm, and it makes sense to people. And, but at the end of the day, if you think, you know, what is it that most people, if they're not captains of ships at sea, or pilots, most people in fixed places, they want to know uh, how likely is it that I'm going to experience dangerous conditions where I am? How likely is it the wind's going to blow harder than 60 or 80? How likely is it that I'm going to get a flood? And we can do that now. We can we run um, these ensembles every time we make a forecast uh, numerical forecast, we're now up to a thousand ensemble members. This is not to the major uh, forecasting centers, but something we've been doing. And it's enough that for any given point, like Miami or Savannah or some place on the coast you're worried about, we can say, look, over the next 48, 72 hours, here's how the probability that you're going to experience more than winds of more than some number as a function of how big that number is and how likely it is you're going to flood. 
And so it's a huge challenge, though, to, to change the way we communicate information to be more people-focused. And it also means that people have to be able to interrogate us or collectively our knowledge individually go to a website and say, okay, I'm going to plug in my city or my latitude and longitude, and it's going to churn out this that's particular to, to me. And it's not about the storm. It's about conditions where I live. I'd be interested in your take on that, but I've been trying to, to, to push that for a while. Well, I, I basically agree with you, although in uh, big situations, in really dangerous situations, there is a threshold. Right. Really, what counts is the threshold. It, you know, are the odds sufficient of something really bad happening that we have to take action? Right. And determining what that threshold is, is really what it's about. And normally, you know, in terms of hurricane warnings, for example, we generally are in the 15 to 20 percent range when a hurricane warning goes up as a, that's one kind of threshold. But if you're the mayor of a city, what you really want to know is, you know, Am I above the level that I sh should be able to establish in advance, right? That I'm yeah. going to trigger my plan just based on the science of saying that the risk is above my trigger level. And I'm figuring out what these trigger levels are. That's a whole different thing. But, but if you knew what that was, the science should be able to identify, okay, if the, what I want to know is the odds over of, of sustained winds over 75 miles per hour. And if it's over the so-and-so odds, then I have to trigger my plan that, that's going to respond to that. So I, I think that from a response to extreme events standpoint, you know, whether it's extreme storm surge, extreme aspects of a hurricane, it's got to do with, like you say, the risk. But it's not just the pure risk because people don't understand the numbers anyway. And even the policy makers don't understand the numbers and the, deci the decision makers don't understand the numbers. But if they have predetermined in their plan what the threshold is and what we base it on is delivering, delivering these odds that they can compare to something predetermined, I think that makes decision making easier. And if, if that was baked into our system, I think that the communications would be easier. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And, you know, if you, you could imagine a forecasting system of the future where the mayor or whoever decides these things in particular cities at each forecast time, given a, a probability curve, here's the probability that the winds are going to be whatever their threshold is. Let's say it's hurricane force are going to be greater than that in the next 72 hours. And they can see whether that from one forecast to the next where that probability is increasing as perhaps the certainty becomes larger or whether it is decreasing. Mm -hmm. um, and that not just the current probability that based on the current forecast, but the history of that can inform them about making decisions. And there's always going to be a subjective element. So, But I think that if they, if they knew yeah. what the threshold was for their community and that was predetermined by their yeah. emergency committee or whatever, it would just make the decision making at the... Uh, point would. of attack, you know, uh, less controversial. But there are ways it, it can <laughs> yeah. go wrong. Like the wind goes down, but the surge threat goes up. <laughs> goes up what right. happened with Sandy, exactly. right, when it was approaching New York. Exactly, and, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, Carrie, is there something obvious and big left to learn about hurricanes and how they work? Or, or do we pretty much know the science and the work now is mostly about uh, getting more measurements more often, getting the data into the computers? 
oh, I think there's a lot we need to learn about storms. It's going to continue to be on the science side, a very rich field for a while. I would say there, I mean, I could give you a catalog of things I think we don't understand. The first top of the list, I think a lot of people would agree with this, is we don't really understand how they form in the first place. The so-called genesis problem. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they sometimes in the Atlantic form from what we call African easterly waves, but not every African easterly wave in the summer produces a storm. Um, these beautiful spiral bands that you see in satellite pictures of things. I, there are a lot of theories for them, and there, a lot of them are plausible, but we don't have any definitive. I think if you asked people who study hurricanes, do we really know how they work? They'd say, no, there's this idea and that idea. We're kicking it around um, concentric eye walls when the eye wall of a hurricane is replaced by an outer eye wall that contracts in. That's still up for grabs. Um, there's an awful lot. Um, I think it's important to remind people that in spite of the fact universally we think of hurricanes as windstorms, in point of fact, the great majority of mortality in these storms anywhere in the world, including the United States, is from water. Mm -hmm. It's from the storm surge. It's from rain. And we've got to do a lot better job on that, both on the predicting, the scientific problem of predicting those things, but also on the problem of communicating that. You know, I think to an average person, if you stay storm surge, my experience is they don't have usually a clear image in their head. If you say a tornado, almost everybody can remember a video of a tornado or something. But you say storm surge, they sort of say, what is that? And I like to play uh, videos uh, taken during Haiyan, which was a terrible typhoon that hit the Philippines uh, not so long ago. And it's when you see that, you know you can't survive it. You know there's no way you could survive it. Yeah, I've seen that video. I, I was in, in Tacloban a week after Haiyan. It was unfreaking believable. Yeah, I bet, it, I bet it was. But we need to... I think we need to sensitize people more about that danger and also about the danger of freshwater flooding from, from heavy rain somehow. And increasingly, freshwater flooding, that's one of the, the, the most well-agreed-upon components of hurricanes in a warmer world is that they're going to have more water, produce more rain. And we've seen, you know, we talked about Harvey three times now. That'll be a greater threat, but it just doesn't get the headlines uh, like, the you know, people – they think of the winds and they, they look at the scale and they make their assessments on how dangerous the storm is based off of that number quite often. And that video that you're talking about, for those that are listening, you need to look at this video because you might think of storm surge as a gentle rise in water over hours. This is a tidal wave. It's a This thing just comes barreling in and uh, runs right into a building. I, I know exactly the video that you're speaking of. I saw it in one of your presentations. It's also on YouTube. <laughs> Worth seeing. So, so Something else uh, I read in your book about the Mayans. You talk a lot about the Mayans and, and ancient peoples and how they dealt with hurricanes, and they built inland wisely to stay away from hurricanes. This is a lesson that we haven't taken to heart in the modern day. It seems our risk continues to increase, not just because storms' speed limits may go up or they're producing more rain, but largely due to population expo ex uh, explosions in vulnerable areas, um, partially because living on the coast, as I understand it, is artificially cheap. 
subsidized by the government capping insurance costs. They're very complex political and economic drivers for this. But do you think that we'll be able to continue this and adapt to changes with hurricanes and climate? Uh, and what kind of uh, policy would you like to see for risk mitigation? Well, it's a very fraught subject and probably the most important one in terms of human impacts that we've talked about uh, today, um, which is um, the, uh, the fact that quite by accident, we are, we are subs massively subsidizing people to engage in risky behavior. And I would say that even if there were not a trace of climate change, it's a, we're going to have Katrinas and Harveys as far as we can see in the future unless the policy changes. And even if the climate didn't, weren't changing, that would be true. And um, there is a wonderful book uh, written by Gilbert Gall called The Geography of Risk. I recommend to anyone who's interested in this problem, which really tells the story of how people along the coast, particularly wealthy people who live right on the beach, have manipulated various systems so that they don't have to pay much to live there. And the, the subsidies come in several different forms. Uh, an important one is insurance premiums. You know, in a free market, the premium is supposed to reflect the risk, but it doesn't. It's way too low. Uh, even if people think it's high, it's way too low on the coast. And it's too low because um, the residents have gotten state governments, usually state governments, to put caps on insurance premiums. And so what happens is the insurance companies aren't allowed by law to charge more than X. And so what ends up happening so that they don't, the insurance company doesn't sink, the state quietly allows them to overcharge people, generally poorer people living further inland. So we have a massive flow of, of money from the poor to the rich. And the thing that's tragic about that is that when the storm comes, the wealthy people can and do get out, leaving behind people, as happened in Katrina, they don't have the means to get out. So it's a very socially unjust uh, system that leads to unnecessary uh, suffering. Another uh, subsidy is federal disaster relief. Now, of course, nobody would come out swinging against the idea that we should help people after disaster, but there's no buy-in at all. Uh, necessarily from a homeowner who puts up a flimsy condo on the beach and it gets wiped out by a storm and the taxpayer builds them a new one for free with no stipulations necessarily that it has to be stronger or higher and no and no um, the demand from the homeowner that they pay part of it even if it's a small part of it to disincentivize people from building in those places to begin with so there are many, many different ways we underwrite risky behavior. And as long as we keep doing that, there's going to be more risky behavior. and We're going to have more problems. Yeah, Here in southeast Florida, at least, especially starting here in Miami-Dade County after Hurricane Andrew, um, you know, they adopted a building code and said never again. And they studiously enforce it. It's a pain in the neck to build something here, even though they're building high rises and everything else like there's no tomorrow. But it really is a lot of work. You go to downtown Miami into one of those high rises or even a residential house and you go to open the sliding glass door and it's like a bank vault. Now, you know, it's, yeah. it's this big heavy uh, thing because it has to withstand actual physical testing. Uh, so, so we have taken that step, but I have made a statement. You mentioned insurance, which to me is a, 
ultimately fraught uh, subject. But uh, I've made a statement, and I would love your take on it, that hurricanes... Well, first of all, it's for something to be insurable, let's define the term insurable. And, you know, and I say that to be insurable, something has to happen frequently enough that an actuary can look at the data and tell the insurance company, OK, our losses are going to be here. We're going to put a profit on top of that. You divide that by the number. This is how much you got to charge. That's what some that's what being insurable means in my mind anyway. And. Uh, based on what I know about hurricanes, hurricanes don't fit that definition. They don't happen frequently enough that you can actually know what what some kind of average is. They have these huge spikes. It would be like, you know, if traffic accidents, uh, suddenly there were all these big spikes where everybody had an accident one day and, and the insurance company could go broke on that day. But it doesn't happen that way with traffic accidents or fires or something like that. So... I've been saying for years that that hurricanes are not insurable events. Therefore, the system we use to protect people and protect people financially is something different than insurance. And indeed, well, what do we do? We sell relatively cheap insurance, although, as you say, it's not equitable and it's it's, it's a miserable system. And in Florida it's and, and along much of the coast, it's very precarious. People really don't want to uh, provide insurance in some places. And so there sometimes they have to because of some other kind of, of rules uh, that the state puts in place. Uh, but then when there's a bad storm, the federal government just writes the check for 50 or $60 billion and, and says here, you know, and as opposed to having some kind of system in place that treats garden variety hurricanes one way and treats these extreme events the other way. So I, I, I propose from a policy standpoint that you lop off all the extreme events, which is a relative handful of all the events, right? And then you figure out how you're going to ensure the lower level events that do happen reasonably frequently and see if you can actually do, uh, provide insurance for them in a classic sense of insurance. And um, and just tweak them as totally totally separate things, you know, uh, extreme events and and all the other ones. Anyway, I'm interested in your thoughts about what insurability uh, really means. You've obviously thought about this. Well, yeah, I've spent a lot of inordinate amount of time <laughs> on it actually. But um, the interesting thing is that the I mean, you're right that the the statistic historical statistics, even in a place like Florida that has relatively plentiful storms mm -hmm. compared to other places are not really up to the task and yet the insurance premiums people pay or would pay if we had a free market in insurance are based on such statistics and so there are two problems with those statistics one is they're flawed mm -hmm. uh, because they're too short uh, they don't sample the really strong events as you mm -hmm. pointed out um, and the other big problem is that uh, they're based on old data that go back 50 years, and the climate has changed enough already mm -hmm. to invalidate, especially when you get on the extreme end of that tail. It's different now, depending upon where you are. Mm -hmm. um, there may be places in the world where it's less, actually, but most places, unfortunately, have gone up. So I've been a big advocate of getting around the problem of not having enough data to make any kind of intelligent guess about the risk or the premium that you would charge. 
by bringing physical modeling of the kind we talked about earlier, the downscaling, to bear on the whole problem of assessing that risk, where you can get out into the tails of the distribution. And, and believe me, the insurance companies are savvy enough because they have to insure all kinds of other risks that, as you pointed, are more common, like fires and and other geophysical phenomena like earthquakes. Mm. They're savvy enough that if they if they're given sufficiently good data, they can make telling decisions. But then the next obstacle, which is even bigger, is the political obstacle that they're not allowed to charge a premium that actually reflects the risk. Until we solve that problem, it, you know, it, all the science we do on better risk assessment isn't going to be able to make much difference. Mm -hmm. So um, just wrapping up, because I know uh, we got to go and you got to go, but it's been wonderful having you. But I, I imagine it's extremely frustrating to know so much about how the atmosphere and the ocean works and visualize scary future uh, scenarios of rising seas and heat waves and droughts and so forth. And, and you don't seem at all reticent. I mean, not at all, um, which seems to me some scientists are about speaking out about it and trying to affect policy. Is that because you're old like me and professionally secure? Or or what's your take on scientists um, in informing the public and at large and talking about dangers and, and you know addressing global warming and the accompanying changes in the climate and uh, you know what role should scientists take? Do you think? Well, in a perfect system, which mm -hmm. obviously we don't live in, in a perfect mm -hmm. world, we have scientists who are primarily driven by their own curiosity about how things work. Um, try to convey that knowledge to the extent that it's important for society to policymakers, politicians, and others who need to use it. And then they take the ball from there. And you can be, as a scientist, completely in, impartial and should be on the advice you give to those politicians. But it's not a perfect world. And the fact is, is that politicians have their own agendas and they will ignore what you say or worse, distort it into something else. And then that presents a big dilemma for mm -hmm. us as kind scientists. Where we are. We, right. <laughs> we, I mean, if it was just our professional reputation at stake, we just say, oh, that's too bad. And we mm -hmm. shut up and go on and do something else. Mm -hmm. But when it's your, uh, you know, when there's more at stake, when there are people's lives at stake. Yeah, it's your planet. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> What happened a few years ago, which was a much more clear example of this, is when the National Hurricane Center issued a perfectly good forecast of an ongoing hurricane, and uh, and the president of the United States tried to say this isn't the right forecast; it's going to go here. Then what does it? Where does that leave the forecaster? Because mm -hmm. it's an impossible situation. Lives are at stake. You have to correct that, right? right? You have right. to say, look, it's not going to go there. All right. There's no chance it's going to go there. It might go here or might go there. But then you come across as being political because you're contradicting mm -hmm. a politician. So it's an impossible thing. And in the end, everybody has to use his own judgment, his or her own judgment about where to take that. And that's where we are in the climate situation. Politicians don't really want to think about this. And so we, we some of us speak up and say, really, you got to take this seriously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's... But the, the bottom line is that people like you, well-established people, can do that. And other people that 
may have a full understanding and probably do have a full understanding they are not in a professional or you know their situation their life situation doesn't uh, permit it in the same way isn't that fair yeah, absolutely fair. It's, that's why it's such a personal decision about what you do. Right, yeah. right. Well, thanks, Gary, very much. It's uh, wonderful to see you, and, and I really appreciate you being here on our podcast. It's been fun. It's great to see you guys, too. Dr. Carrie Emanuel from the Department of Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Sciences at MIT in Boston. That's what they call the school that encompasses now more than just meteorology at MIT. So Luke, he's amazing, isn't he? Uh, every time I'm at a conference where Kerry is speaking, I never want to miss his talk. He is so fascinating and super brain. I mean, just the guy's just a wealth of knowledge. He's so intelligent, so happy that we have a guy like that working on the hurricane problem. But it's not just that. It's his communication. Mm -hmm. I'm a communicator by trade, mm -hmm. but when I listen to him, I want to Throw in the towel and say, there's no way. I'll, I'll never be as good as him. He's so crystal clear and so concise. Uh, what a man. Yeah, yeah. The clarity of his arguments always carries the day at the at the uh, hurricane conferences. And, and you know, <laughs> he and I are a similar age, and so we've been doing it uh, a long time. All right, uh, coming up next week, we're going to talk to the legendary and highly entertaining retired senior hurricane specialist from the National Hurricane Center, Dr. Lixian Avila. Uh, Lixian studied meteorology in Cuba and then came to the University of Miami for his master's and PhD in the 1980s. And the rest, as they say, is Hurricane Center history. Lixian has written more advisories and explanatory discussions than anyone in National Hurricane Center history. And Lixian will join us next week here on the podcast. So be sure you subscribe to the podcast on your Apple or Android uh, phone because then you'll get notified when a new podcast is online. Or, of course, you can watch Twitter or Facebook uh, as well, and we'll let you know. Until then, for Luke Doris, I'm Brian Norcross. Stay safe, be well, please get vaccinated if you haven't, and we'll see you next week.